want to ask, what if we learned to see our neighbors as Jesus taught his disciples to actually see them? Would we make a difference in our community if we served them as true neighbors? Would we be more successful at reaching the lost and making disciples of those that are being saved? In our ministry, we train our chaplains to work in secular settings outside of the church and in the church too, but we must understand that there's a difference between spiritual care and religious care. In religious care, we speak Christian ease to people who don't understand our language. Spirituality and religion are not the same thing, and also discipleship and evangelism are not the same thing either. To begin, we first need to understand Jesus' teaching in answering the question, who is my neighbor? To most Christians today, that concept of who is my neighbor is very different than what Christ actually teaches in the New Testament. In many church cultures today, and certainly in the culture of Jesus' day, you would never ever leave your own familiar peer group. You would conform to your group, to the peer pressure of your group, so much so that it becomes impossible to engage effectively with anyone who belongs to a different group that's not your own or is dissimilar from yours. And in this culture, we end up rejecting people who worship differently, who live different lifestyles, who think differently, eat different foods, speak different languages, dress in different clothes. In most churches today, our neighbor is represented only by our comfortable, familiar peer group. And we have the mistaken idea that we have to point out all that is wrong with everything, with everyone else, and tell them what we believe they hear, whether we're invited to do so or not. We're wired to tell. We often presume that they may have opened a door to tell that a door was not really open to walk through. This way of thinking is rampant in our country today and rampant in the Christian church as clearly seen by how people are being divided. Divided into factions by disagreement, by argument, by political views, by non-Christian versus Christian worldviews, and even hate for one another. But Jesus, as usual, turns our view of living upside down. So let's consider his teaching. I'll ask you to open your Bibles if you have one. Actually, I'm preaching from the New American Standard Bible today, and, and the scriptures will be on the screen. But if you want, open to Luke chapter 10. And let me set the stage for you as I preach through verses 1 through 37. Jesus had gathered his growing disciples together, and he chose 70 of them to be sent out on their first ever training mission without Jesus going with them. And the purpose of this passage is simple. It was to train them and also to show us by observing how to be loving, how to practice the ministry of presence and how to be hospitable so that some may be drawn to salvation in Jesus Christ. And this scripture that we're looking at today shows us how to reach out to people outside of our own familiar church neighbors. And where does it take place? 
in secular settings, outside the church, which Jesus refers to here as a field of harvest. Our text is found in Luke 10, 1 to 37. As we consider the question, who is my neighbor? Verse 1, now, after this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. And he was saying to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus is coming to Sheboygan and has sent you to prepare your neighbors and yourselves for his coming. And he wants to send us into the mission field where the harvest is actually located. And it cannot be done only inside the church. So I'll ask you, where is your mission field? Collectively as a church and individually as a believer, where is your mission field? Who needs to be reached by you? And what are you doing about it? Let's look at verse 3. Jesus said, Go, behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. After all, the work is not going to be easy. C.S. Lewis said, We live in enemy-occupied territory. And there is truth to that statement. Does the work that Jesus calls each of us to do frighten you? Well, it probably should. But he goes with us. Do you believe that? In verse 4, he went on to say, Carry no money belt, no bag, no shoes, and greet no one on the way. In other words, don't worry about what you need. God will provide for you as you're on mission doing the things Jesus is telling us, expecting us to do. God will provide. And also, don't get distracted along the way to the people you're being called to by anything that takes a focus off of your mission and your destination. In verse 5, I love this passage, whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not... It will return to you. That's an interesting phrase that is difficult to understand because we don't speak the original Greek in the culture that they were in. But it, it's called a colloquialism, and it was used in ordinary conversation in that time. A modern example could be like last night when my wife and I were at Pastor Stephen's house and he cooked us burgers. I could have said, Pastor, that's a wicked good burger. And we would all understand what I mean by that. Or I could say, I feel you, bro, if I'm listening to somebody share their struggle. Or like the other night when we were parked at the campground in our RV for the first time and it really rained hard and my wife said, man, it's raining cats and dogs outside. We all understand these colloquialisms in our culture. But here in this passage, to say peace be to this house is essentially inviting someone to a friendship, inviting them into a relationship, an opportunity to spend quality time together in fellowship. 
getting to know each other, making friends of people who are outside of our own familiar relationships and our own familiar culture. And that is the beginning of our mission in the harvest field. It has absolutely nothing at all to do with finger-wagging judgmental condemnation everywhere we go looking for opportunities to rebuke them, to correct them, to tell them what we think they need to hear, contact evangelism or apologetics that creates an us-versus-them combative or hostile mentality, dividing us into peer groups with people who disagree with us, viewing our neighbor incorrectly. And what if, what if the person accepts your offer of friendship? Now what? What do we do then if they say, sure, I would like to get to know you? Well, Jesus makes it so simple. We make it so complicated. Listen carefully to what Jesus tells us to do. If your peace settles on them, they accept your offer of friendship. Verse 7, he said, stay in that house, eating and drinking what they give you. For the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not keep moving from house to house. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what is set before you and heal those in it who are sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Now we have to remember there was no such thing as fast food back then. It took time to prepare a meal. I mean, their meat was still running around out in the pasture. And when we're encountering people whose life and customs are so very different from ours and we're engaging in life with them in their context, we might have to become adventurous eaters. Notice that Jesus said, stay in that house. And he said, do not keep moving from house to house like some door-to-door salesman handing out tracts or something. Jesus is instructing us to spend and be willing to spend quality time in relationships, not in superficial bursts of telling people about Jesus without spending time in relationship, loving them as they are. He also tells us to heal them. Now, healing takes time too, wouldn't you agree? Implies a longer-term period of relationship to heal someone. Healing takes time. It requires a commitment to relationships. So today, in your community and in your church, perhaps the biggest sickness that nearly everyone needs healed from, every person in your community suffers from, grief. All around you is anxiety, uncertainty, fear, unhappiness, lack of connection, lack of self-worth, suicidal thoughts, spiritual sickness, and a lack of understanding of truth. This is what our chaplains deal with every single day. It's killing the people around you. It's killing them, and it may be killing some of you. Let's do something about that through loving relationships. Here, the key to effectiveness in the mission field, which is just down the street or in the company where you serve or with your family or your friends or your peer group, is investing quality time in the ministry of loving presence, listening to understand, being curious about the other person and their story and their life, 
what is it like to be them, and then staying with them a while. It's through a genuine friendship that God draws them or may draw them near to Christ where salvation can be experienced. This is where we can share our faith, but not before the relationship has produced both trust and interest in what makes us different, which should be visible as we're going about life in our community. And what do we do among those who do become friends? Well, we show them, we show them that the kingdom of God is standing within their reach. As Christians, He dwells here in our hearts, and wherever we go, wherever we go, there He is, right within reach. But their salvation is not up to us. That's not our job. That job is only up to God. We love them as they are, and we pray that God will open the door to share Jesus with them so that they too can enter into the kingdom of God if they'll accept rather than reject. We have to be careful not to presume that a door is being opened by some statement that they make and knock it open. Jesus said in the book of Revelation, I stand at the door and knock, and anyone who opens it, I will come in, be with them, and sup with them. So if Jesus is not forcing the door open for someone, then why on earth would we Focus on the relationship first and know this, not everyone will accept your offer of friendship. After all, Jesus says we're going to be surrounded by wolves who hate Jesus and they will hate us too. And that's okay. When we encounter people who reject our offer of friendship, Jesus tells us exactly what to do in verse 10. But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into the streets. Even the dust of your city which clings to our feet, we wipe off in protest against you. Yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near. So they will suffer consequences, but that's between them and God, not between us and them. He said in verse 12, I say to you, it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. So I want to say to you, Jesus is coming. Are you ready? Let me get down to verse 16 for you and just look at verse 16. Jesus says that the one who listens to you listens to me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. You see, some will accept your offer of friendship and may be drawn to Christ, but others will reject us because they reject Him. And when that happens, don't take it personally. Judgment belongs only to God, not to us. And that's implied by just shake the dust off of your feet. Don't take it personal. Don't carry it with you. Don't be anxious over it. Just go offer friendship to someone else who may accept it. That's essentially the message here. And this should be our way of life until he returns or calls us home with reward in hand and hopefully smile on his face. In essence, this is hospitality. That's what he's demonstrating here in this passage, a crucial skill and a spiritual gift that we all should be asking God for, hospitality. We need to be hospitable to everyone, especially those who don't know Jesus 
as we know Jesus. We are the saved of God. We are the body of Christ. And we represent one of the last places on earth where we can meet people who are different than we are and invite them into a relationship to join or form a larger family if they'll only accept our offer. Chaplain Henry Nowen put it this way, and I love this, and I quote, he said, In our world full of strangers, estranged from their own past, culture, and country, from their neighbors, friends, and family, estranged from their deepest self and their God, we witness a painful search for a hospitable place where life can be lived without fear and where community can be found. Hospitality, therefore, means primarily the creation of a free space where the stranger can be a friend instead of an enemy. Hospitality is not to change people, but rather to offer them a space where change can take place. That is exactly what those ex the disciples did. That's what they experienced. And when they returned to Jesus, they were absolutely amazed at the result of their work. Verse 17, the 70 returned with joy. Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name, they said. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I've given you, you, authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you, not even death, I would add. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Repeat, rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven if you're a believer. That's where we find our joy and our courage to serve. At that very time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit, and he said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants, new believers. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, he said, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is, except the Son and anyone to whom the Son reveals Him. Is that you today? Turning to the disciples, He said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see, for I say to you that many prophets and kings wished to see the things which you see and did not see them and to hear the things which, which you hear and did not hear them. You see, fulfilling our mission to make disciples, teaching them to obey, and living a changed life in our salvation, the kind of life that points to the glory of God, is impossible unless you believe. You cannot be a disciple unless you're saved. And you cannot disciple the unsaved. Those who try to live well for God on their own will simply fall away as we see time and time again in the New Testament and also in the modern church. Once saved, if the salvation is genuine, then learning 
and making progress at living this new life in Christ is expected so that people can see what it looks like when the body of Christ shows up in their backyard during their trial or crisis, showing them that the kingdom of God is standing within reach. In other words, we make progress at walking the walk we talk. Jesus used three methods of disciple-making, and he also expects each of us to do the same as we learn to follow his example. First, he taught his followers what, and he told them why. Now, we too need to teach believers how to live according to the truth of Scripture, but we can not accomplish our mission by only teaching and telling that produces finger-wagging, judgmental Christians who fail to remove the log from their own eye before they start trying to remove splinters from their brother's eye. Progress is expected before we begin to tell anyone else how to live, especially the unsaved. Jesus followed his teaching them by showing them how and doing it with them, and that's the second thing that he did. Show them how I'm doing and doing it with them. The disciples followed Jesus on the mission field and they watched him in amazement. And then after they had received teaching and experienced life on mission with Jesus, he deployed them to do that very thing on their own while he watched them with joy as they did the work he sent them to accomplish. And today he is watching you and me. We must teach new believers, tell them why. Then show them how and do it with them. Are you doing that? Are you on mission? And are you having an opportunity to show others how to be on mission to you too? So that eventually we can deploy them to be the body of Christ for ministry just exactly as we are expected in Scripture to be deployed in the mission field. That's our mission. And that is also discipleship. This is what we train our chaplains to do. In this passage, we encounter the return of the disciples after their very first ever deployment. It had been a rather amazing experience for them, the kind that produced joy in the returning disciples and joyful reception of our Lord Jesus Christ. These things that we who follow Jesus, the things that we get to see, and experience are things that prophets and kings and people of higher intellect and learning have longed to see but do not or did not get to see for themselves. His disciples had just returned from ministering to people outside of their familiar community. The understanding of who is my neighbor is rather profound for those who follow Jesus. And he set the example for it himself, didn't he? A leper. A leper could not be our neighbor. The leper was required to shout, unclean, unclean, walking down the middle of the street so that people could move out of their way and not run the risk of even having the dust of that leper's feet get kicked up and cling to their clothing and make them also unclean. Who are your modern-day lepers? Who are the people that you may be failing to engage with, perhaps shunning as unclean 
We know that Jesus healed lepers, but not from a distance with a hazmat suit on. Note that Jesus touched the leper before healing the leper and put that example on display for his disciples to follow. It is up close and personal, this relationship of being a Christian. We know that Jesus went to the well where he would encounter a reject of Jewish society, a woman who had been divorced many times. But Jesus went to her and met her where she was at the well in her context, up close and personal. We know that Jesus took the disciples to see and encounter the Gerizim demoniac. And to the Jew, this was an awful, awful place filled with unclean pigs and unclean people and just walking on the ground covered in pig filth and air filled with pig dust would have been a horror to the Jewish people. You can picture the deer-in-the-headlight expression on those disciples' faces as Jesus stepped off the boat and said, Come with me. It's up close. It's personal. It's in their cultural context, not in ours. Jesus knows that our neighbor is, is not who we think it is. And now we will see the thought process of the highly religious and highly educated of their society who did not understand who their neighbor is. They were practicing a lifestyle of exclusiveness, which is a disease that the church still suffers from today. The incredible joy and the animated conversation those disciples had upon their return was observed by the religious community that was listening in on their conversation. They wanted to ask some questions, so we'll pick it up at verse 25. And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? We should make note of the question he asked. It reveals the heart of this man. A lawyer back then was an expert in the law of Moses. He probably had committed the entire Old Testament to memory. I mean, when I first became a Christian, I had trouble remembering Jesus wept. It was the first scripture I memorized because I thought, that's short enough, I can remember it. This man had memorized at least the first five books of the Old Testament, but probably the entire Old Testament. So we see what's important to him. It's embedded in the question. He's concerned about inheriting eternal life. Isn't that the question we all should be grappling with? It certainly is the question that those devout Jews were trying their best to answer without salvation being available through the risen Lord Jesus Christ. But his approach, this lawyer's approach to inheriting eternal life is based on what we must do, not on what only Christ can do. What must I do? He asked. Their belief was that we have to get all the living right, abide by all the laws, including the more than 600 rules that were added by the rabbis over the years as lived out together in community that caused them to see only each other as neighbors. Salvation in our own power is absolutely impossible. We cannot do it. Only Jesus can save you and only if you truly believe. That's how we inherit the kingdom of God is believing that Jesus is who he said he is. It's the only way. But the lawyer didn't know that. The lawyer did not know that. And so Jesus illustrates the problem in his response 
here beginning in verse 26 when he said to the lawyer, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But justifying self, wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? If I'm expected to go and do this, who am I supposed to do it to? But wait, it's impossible to love God or people with everything we've got unless his love is actually dwelling in us. This lawyer is trying to do the impossible. He cannot do it. Jesus answers, do this and you will live. Oh, snap. It can't be done apart from a personal relationship as the saved of Christ. Unless God's love dwells in you, it is impossible to love him back. It is impossible to love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind, focused exclusively on him and living for him without his love in you. And without his love in you, it's impossible to love your neighbor, your knuckle-headed, difficult neighbor. You can't love them. You can't love the unlovable unless God is loving them through you. Wishing to justify himself, well, that's not a negative statement here. It's just the way they engaged with each other in society. They were they were involved in apologetics, and we see that happening in the church today. Sometimes it's quite negative, and sometimes it's just informative, where we're learning. Wishing to justify himself is not negative. He's an expert in the law, and these people were used to healthy discussion, asking the rabbi difficult questions, grappling with the answers as they were thinking it through. And this man, who had memorized the entire Old Testament, knew the law better than most. But here comes the point of this passage, he responds to Rabbi Jesus with, and who is my neighbor? And there it is. This man thinks that only those who are like himself are his neighbor. And Jesus answered the question with a story in the hope that we also will get the point that Jesus wanted his disciples to get so that we can answer that same question for ourselves. Look at verse 30. Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Clearly, this man was in a crisis. Wouldn't you agree? He's in a crisis. We're surrounded by people in our own community and even in our church who are in a crisis. Loss of life, loss of job. Addiction, loss of health, suicidal thoughts, anxiety, fear, confusion, and so much grief. Grief, for various reasons, is so common all around us all the time that we fail to even notice it. And even when we do notice, we don't do anything about it. Could it be that we lack compassion for others? 
Now, back then, the most likely person in Jewish society to have set a carrying example would have been the priest or the Levite. They were called by God to lead the Jews into living righteously for God by obeying the law. And so in verse 31, we see the expected heroes of the story. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now here, the leaders failed to set an example for their people to follow. They ignored the clear need of the man in crisis, and they passed by on the other side of the road. This is not my neighbor. I have a schedule to keep. I'm too busy to do anything. I need to take care of my job, my goals, my mission. In verse 33, but a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, and he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn to take care of him. And on the next day, he took out two denarii, and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. To them, this was an astonishing example. They hated the Samaritans. They were prejudiced against that people group or cultural group called the Samaritans. The Samaritans worshipped in Samaria. They never came to Jerusalem for the festivals or for the Passover. They didn't live or worship as true Jews do. The Samaritans were worthless believers. They were not true Jews. They do not practice life or faith as we do. We're the only ones who get it right. And this Samaritan represents for me a regular Joe, just like you and me, the unqualified follower who doesn't get it all right, who certainly isn't perfect, but knows it. He's the least likely to do anything that would put a smile on Jesus' face. That's what they would have thought. And yet he's the hero of the story. What a shocking example to those Jews who had been listening to the conversation. The returning disciples described the joy and the power that they experienced by having done that thing that Jesus told them to do, which we also need to learn how to do. And what did the Samaritan do? Well, he saw the man in need and he felt compassion. Do we? He came to the man and provided emergency care sometimes, Sometimes the wounds are not visible. But people still need emergency spiritual care, emotional care. Do we see the need? After the emergency care was provided, he brought the man to a place where longer-term care might be provided. He got help. For us, this could be bringing them to a hospital, a mental health facility, a ministry providing needed services, a trained counselor, our own small group, or even our church. The Samaritan took two denarii out of his own pocket and paid the innkeeper in advance. Now, that's equal to two days' wages. Two full days' wages. It wasn't a small sum. And then the Samaritan said something profound. When I come back, not if, 
But when? He was committed to the relationship. He was serious about the offer of friendship. And when I come back, I will pay if any more is owed. So take care of this man until I return to him. And I see Jesus in that sentence. He directs us to take care of people until he returns. And he will repay us for our work. There are three people who had an opportunity to help in this story. The unlikely servant from Samaria like you and me. The priest and the Levite, the religious leaders of the day who were expected to be the heroes of the story. And then Jesus said in verse 36 to the lawyer, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And the lawyer said, the one who showed mercy toward him. And then Jesus said, go and do the same. Now, I think the Samaritan would have been an awesome chaplain. We are the body of Christ, you and me, together, if you all believe. Those of you who believe, we're the body of Christ. That's what we are. We provide spiritual care. And chaplains do it in secular settings almost exclusively. Our chaplains understand that spiritual care is not religious care. They're different things. But we believe that our work will open many doors to sharing the gospel in meaningful ways. But we start with an offer of friendship like Jesus taught. And we are willing to engage in the effort of maintaining and building on that relationship. We provide emergency care, just like that good Samaritan did. We pray to earn the right to share that the kingdom of God is standing within their reach, and many will reject us. But those who will accept our offer, those who may be drawn to Christ, well, it'll be more than you can handle. If you do this mission the way Jesus is teaching us in this passage, it will be more than you can handle, even though you'll get a lot of rejection. So to close, let me emphasize that our mission is what Jesus says that it is. Our mission is to love God with all our heart, our minds, our soul, our strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. And that's followed that's followed by making disciples of those who receive him. But we love and serve everyone, whether they accept him or reject him. We love them as they are. We are a friend to them in their setting, not judging, not condemning, listening, caring, asking them questions rather than giving them solutions because only God has the solution for them. And that's why I think he gave us two ears and one mouth. We need to speak less, listen more, ask questions and let the Holy Spirit draw them in. And then we make disciples of those that say, yes, I want what you have. We invite them into our families. We make them part of our lives. We teach them how to live for Jesus. We are dedicated to serving on mission in secular settings where our neighbors are located, are, are you. Jesus said to that lawyer, and we say to our chaplains, go and do the same. But you can't do it without Jesus. You need Jesus. And so do they. Let's pray.
Dear Father in heaven, please help us to live this life that you would have us live, the mission that you would give us to accomplish. Empower, O oh Lord, the members of this wonderful church to serve people outside the walls of this building while also serving with and for each other, to be purposefully on mission to their neighbors. Allow them, Lord, allow them the joy that comes from seeing the kinds of results that those early disciples experienced. And let us all learn, Father, how to make a friend and be a friend and draw our friend to Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.